Happiness and joy, joy. Yay. So we did, what did we do before the Christmas uh, lesson? The, that big word. No, I mean, that last week we did the uh, the incarnation because yeah. it was Christmas. But the week before we did one that was rough. They've all been rough. Uh, I can, my memory, I'll show you, I'll tell you what I'm writing and my brain goes dead. Uh, oh, does God command genocide? Right. And so today we're gonna we're gonna do a trifecta of happy, happy, joy, joy lessons. This is good. Happy. This one's called "Does God Hate People?" Oh, okay. So what do you think? Does it sound like happy? Mm -hmm. No, but it's another one of these things where uh, it's a it's an apologetic issue, but also it's an in, intra-Christian issue. A lot of people will you there's all kinds of verses that are just tough. Well, first off, we we acknowledge that every every scripture is the word of God and inerrant, and so but but there are ones that are more difficult than others to deal with, and so you have to work through them. Especially, like I said, in light of people will challenge the Christian faith based upon these verses that we uh, that we uh, are dealing with. Yeah, let's see here. I'm trying to think. Uh, my friend Witt in Florida was talking to his neighbor and he brought up something I can't remember exactly what it was but he asked him is that, is that the word of God and I think it was having maybe having to do with genocide you know the command to kill all the children and everything of a certain nation and Witt's answer is the right answer he yes it is it's the word of God and then but then you address it because people will just isolate something and try and make God look like a God that's not merciful, just, loving. But as we talked about, you know, as the ones we dealt with a couple weeks ago, when, when God did command genocide, He has the right to do that. Because He created everything, He owns everything, He gets to set the rules, but also, judicially, He can judge sin anytime and in any way He wants to. Everybody, especially unbelievers, wants to have a God who's just, you know, puppies and rainbows and air balloons and just all lovey-dovey and that's just not the biblical God. Yes, God is love as we'll see, but His love is a holy love. His love is a love that opposes sin. And therein lies the entire issue of things. Alright, so this lesson is about a difficult biblical topic that several scriptures raise. Does the one true God hate people? We often hear God is love and that's true. 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. That's one of God's, I don't know if you remember when we did the attributes of God, one of his core attributes is love. God is love. And so it is a, it is a, it is a part of his being. Uh, and for God so loved the world. And that's my typo there. So it doesn't say, and for God so loved the world. He loved the world. See, I said it right. And of course, that's John 3.16, and that's also true. But we need to deal with all of Scripture and not let one attribute of God become out of balance with our in our understanding of Him. As we've just seen, there's clearly a sense in which God loves everyone in some way. Now let's deal with the text that raises the issue of our lesson. Alright, so we first of all, we, we set the foundation by realizing that, yes, there is a sense in which God loves everybody 
for God so loved the world, that, that means everybody. So we're talking about specifically, or not specifically, but, but every single part of his creation, is, and especially the culmination of his creation is human beings. He loves everyone in, a, in some sense. And so we start there in realizing that. And that's, again, those, those birth of God is love. And also, the, for God so loved the world, that shows that he has a general sense of love for the whole world. All right, well, the text that most people struggle with is Romans 9.13, where it says, just, it is, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so, this verse is one of the most often struggled with pertaining to the topic. But actually, I think it's relatively simple to resolve. The context is that of election. Romans 9 is a, is a chapter where God is dealing with the election in a broad way. Um, and so God being decisive in whom he has mercy on and whom he accomplishes his purposes through. And specifically here, it's referring to the issue that not all of Abraham's physical descendants necessarily being spiritual descendants, in quotation, saved as well. The point is illustrated by God choosing to bring about the line of Messiah through Isaac instead of Ishmael, and in our scripture through Jacob rather than Esau. So I believe here we have what is what I call comparative love. That is, by comparison, God's undeserved electing love he shows to Jacob makes his love, by comparison, I put in bold there, to Esau, look like hate. God loves Esau in some sense, but has an additional redemptive love to Jacob for his purposes and for his glory. And it was certainly not in regards to anything in Jacob if you know his history. He was... He was a scoundrel. He was a liar. He, he got his birthright through deception. Um, and so we know that salvation never is dependent upon something God sees in the person. So the reason he saved you, me, or dad, or anybody else who he's ever saved has absolutely nothing to do with something we brought, nor some kind of future faith that he saw us having. But it was just according to his purpose. And we don't specifically know why, that purpose is, but it's always according to his mercy, not according to anything we bring. And the same thing here. If God would have chosen to bring the line of Messiah through Esau instead of Jacob, which would have been the natural thing because Esau was the firstborn, barely. They were twins, but Esau came out first. Then that's what would have happened. And Esau would have been, and again, if you look at the lives of Esau and Jacob on a human level, you you more likely look at Esau and think, yeah, he's going to be the one because he was more manly. He was, he was. I mean, even on a human level, less deceptive than Jacob. Now Jacob in, ended up eventually down the road becoming humbled by God and becoming a godly person, which is what God does to everybody that He regenerates and saves and uses. That you know, although you bring nothing to the table, when He converts you, His Spirit changes you, and eventually down the road, you become more godly than some unbeliever. And the same thing here. Esau was permanently and perpetually godless. Uh, but like I said, if you, you should read the story, Jacob was uh, anything but you know, a godly person, especially before he began to be shaped by God. 
All right, so you see what I'm saying there is that this is this is a comparative love. So it's not saying he actually hates Esau in that sense, but it's that he hates him compared to the way he loves Jacob. And you can see this in Luke 14, 26. This is one of the very, uh, a lot of difficult verses, but this is one of them where a lot of people will say, whoa, you know, and here's what it says. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So I see, I, ha I hate you guys. <laughs> I mean, I know it's, but if you look at that literally, and, and you can over literalize the Bible, you understand. Obviously, Jesus is not calling us to calling me to hate my parents, spouse, or children. We are clearly commanded to love them in other scriptures. But here's the issue: by comparison, our love for Christ should be, make that love look like hate. So my love for Christ should make my love look for you. And even though I'm clearly commanded to honor my parents, mother, and father. It should make that look like hate. And you should your love for me should look like hate compared to your love for Christ. And so if you ever start to love me more than Christ, you need to adjust that radically. And I said we all are tempted with that, because I care for you all and I love Steph and I love Grace and, and we all struggle with, you know, what's called family idolatry where you begin to consider uh, what your wife or daughter or parents or pastor or you know many other people think rather than what God thinks and it's okay it's a healthy godly thing to think about and I, I should be somewhat concerned about what you think when you have something to offer me I evaluate it but it's subjected below what I go to the Lord first and look for his you know guidance and you know seek his word and so it's always below the Lord. And I want that to be the same thing with you too. And that's why I always say, you know, anything I teach or anything I say, I want you always to be, you know, searching the scriptures, not for, you know, I don't want the scrutiny on typos. But that yeah. He hates people. Huh? That verse doesn't mean he hates people. No. Well, like I said, it's, we'll get to a few more scriptures. Right. It's a little, a little bit more of a struggle. But no, obviously, I, I think what we have in Romans 9.13 is clearly what this is, is comparative love. Right. That is, he, he is making the point that he is sovereign. And, and the verse goes that, um, um, uh, and Rebecca also having conceived the twins by one and the same father, our father Isaac, but before they were born or had done anything good or bad, Here's the key, in, in order that God's purpose and election might stand. So there's the context of what he's talking about here. So God is teaching in Romans 9 about election. And he's saying that before they had done anything good or bad, in order that his purpose in choosing who he's going to run the line of Messiah through, it was all his will and his choice. Then he says, as it is written, Jacob I love, Esau I hate it. And so the context there is, yes, I think it's definitely comparative love. But as you see as we go along here, it gets a little more difficult. Because that one, I think, can be immediately in the context of elective love and, and pretty explanatory. All right, okay, the next few verses can be a little more difficult as we are not in the context of elective love. So no, we're no longer in the context of that anymore. Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And so you see here, 
that we have uh, that God it just clearly states that there's in some sense a sinner who is who loves violence his soul hates and then Psalm 5 5 says the boastful shall not stand before your eyes you hate all who do iniquity And so that's what it says. I underlined yeah, but I'm it. I'm not interpreting that he hates all people. No, he I'm hates not. All bad people. Okay. Well, well. First off, we're all bad people. So how you how are you gonna handle that? Yeah. yeah. People that don't repent. And again, I think you're going to something there. But it's still, well, we'll just deal with it as I'm we sorry. go along here. Okay. Sorry. But it just it's it's typically surprising to people to find out that God makes these statements that He hates. Because uh, we all know that God hates sin, and we'll deal with that in a minute. But but it, what it states clearly that He hates. He's talking about people here. You we know, do bad things. Right. Okay. Well, I think the best way to understand these, in light of God's general love for all, is we know God hates all sin. So there's the first issue. Proverbs six uh, sixteen through nineteen, Malachi two sixteen. I wrote those down. I don't have them right in front of me right now. So, But we know that God hates sin. He opposes sin. He actively opposes sin. That's not a surprise to anybody. And, and he calls us to hate it as well. Romans 12, 9. We are to hate what is evil. And you've heard the saying, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin kind of thing. And since human beings commit sin, there is a sense in which you cannot separate the act of sin from the one committing it. So I think there's the issue we're dealing with here. Otherwise, like what you're saying is, well, yeah, of course, we are, and we, and we are talking about somebody who's unrepentant here in these two psalms. But even as the most righteous Christian, including ourselves, we still sin. And so, there, so if we apply that to us, then God could hate us because we still sin. We still willfully sin sometimes. Now, again, we, he, by his grace, we're cleaned up. And by His grace, we sin less and less, and we should sin less and less, and we should certainly sin less than an unbeliever. But we still have sin. So do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So it's just a, it's a it's just a kind of a difficult thing. But I do think in these contexts here, it talks about it's talking about how you know God hate and you're right. You made a very good point of unrepentant sin. These people here, and again, and, and, and I'll read that, and the ones in these verses above are clearly practicing sin what you're pointing out not struggling against it as the righteous do who are who are distinguished from the wicked and love the sin they're committing the one who loves violence in psalm 11 5 it says and the one who loves violence his soul hates so yes in regards to an unrepentant sinner as you said who loves their sin and hates God, you also understand that, that the biblical teaching is that anybody who's not in Christ, although they wouldn't say it necessarily, some might, they hate the true God. Because anybody who loves their sin will hate anyone who opposes their sin, and that is God. And that's why Christians are hated, because we're called to, to evangelize, and part of evangelizing is to convict people of their sinfulness, and therefore, the people will protect what they love, and they love sin. Uh, and so, 
uh, while loving them in a general sense, these people in Psalm 11 and Psalm 5, God loves them as well in a general sense. He also hates the sin connected to the sinner himself. Therefore, it can be said that he hates them in that connotation. So that's the best I have with it. It's tough, though, because God, because it was, we'll see here as we in the next section is we are he obviously loves those who oppose him as well, and because we opposed him, and Christ died for you know as we'll get to that even though we were enemies of God and enemies of Christ, Christ died. We did a whole lesson on this in Romans, where, where Christ died for people, and that includes us who hated him. Everybody. Whoever becomes a Christian genuine, has a period in their life beforehand, some longer than others. For me, it was 30 years or whatever where I became self-aware and accountable and willfully sinned to the point where he converted me. It was probably about 30 years where I hated God. And God knew that was going to happen. And Christ still, still died for me. He still paid my penalty even though I hated him. And converted me and turned my heart towards him. And so as we'll see, there's a, there's a, and we're called to love our enemies. As we'll see, we've talked about that before, is with the struggle with people we struggle with. The Christian attitude is not just to love people, to love other Christians, we do. Not to just love those people around us who don't irritate us. But we are to love purposely and willfully people who are our worst enemies. And so... That's where the struggle comes in is with these verses that make them tough. So we know God loves like this because we're called to be like God in that sense. But you still have to deal with this, what it says. He says that he, you know, his, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates, and he hates all who does iniquity in some sense. All right, so Matthew 5, 43 through 45, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, this is Jesus talking obviously, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So yet again, we balance these texts with the clear command to love our enemies. Those living in unrepentant sin outside of Christ who may even be persecuting us. And by doing so, we will be like Christ and our Heavenly Father. And so, and also, we must also remember and be humbled by the fact that God, abhor, God can abhor sin. So, when it, when it comes to Psalm 11, Psalm 5, those two very difficult verses, we have to recognize that God can abhor sin in a way that we can't. Why? Because even though we're redeemed, we still commit and struggle against sin while He is and always has been perfectly holy. So you see that you know the the balance and difficulty of working through these scriptures is that we know that God loves His enemies to a certain but he to a certain. Hates the sin. But He hates the sin. That's the thing that makes sense to me. Yeah, and that's why you know you hear that saying, and there's a lot of truth in it. Love the sinner, hate the sin. So we somebody who's an unrepentant unbeliever who might even be mocking us or whatever, uh, opposing us in some sense because we're Christian, we are to love that person and want that person to be saved, want that person to be forgiven, want that person to exalt God the way they ought to, the way they ought to do it. Yet, the things that they're doing, you know, not to bring up specific examples, but anything anybody's doing that's wickedly sinful, we oppose that. We don't, we don't like that. 
we can't like that. You don't want to. You don't want to love. And so there's so you have a person who's doing something destructive in their life. You love that person, and you want the best for that person. But in order to want the best for that person, you have to hate the thing that's destroying them. And you have to be love that person enough, and this is kind of what we were talking about earlier, to make to create some uncomfort in a in a discussion that, that is going to upset a person. But you're doing it out of love. And so the purpose is to to expose them to something that is destroying them. Knowing that there's going to be a reaction on the other end, but you but you don't you don't get you don't get uh, bothered or affected by that because if your motive's right. Now again, if you're if you're not, if you're struggling with the actual motive of that, then you know their response is going to affect you differently than if you genuinely are saying, "Okay, I know this." You know, we talked about things earlier. Where just there's things that just you just have to draw out, and there's going to be emotion, and there's going to be tears, and there's going to be anger, and then, but you but your purpose is good, and you have to press through those things because, especially when it comes to evangelism and talking to people about Christ, it is frightening. To do that, I admit that I've been doing it for years now, and I still every single time, I'm like, Lord, you got to help me here because it does. It's so easy to shrink back. It's so easy to get self-protective. It's so easy to do these things when the only thing that can overcome that is is the love for that person in front of you who's lost or struggling or whatever it is. But at the same time, you obviously you have to hate the things that they're doing. And when somebody in front of me is, you know, using the Lord's name in vain continuously, it it just shrieks my body. I hate it. Yeah. But I don't want to make it personal about, oh, well, it's offending me. I mean, first off, it's offensive to the Lord. But he, but he's okay. He doesn't. He doesn't need to defend him. But I, I'm more concerned about the heart of that person because I know it's demonstrating. It's demonstrating fruit of somebody who is. You know, in a condition where they're not saved and they're under God's judgment. You're cold. It's cold. You cold. Probably so that was a brief lesson. Are you done? Yeah, we went a little quicker than I thought. We did a, good, a deeper one. Yes, and next week we will do one more of the trifecta of happy, happy, joy, joy. <laughs> huh? It's going to be called "Why Is Hell Eternal?" Nice. It's uplifting. I know that's tough, but that's another thing that you know. I interact a lot on Reddit. That's probably my top thing now is to interact on Reddit because it's really just a good atmosphere, good good environment to have a discussion with people, where it's you know people struggling and people ask for prayer and anyway. I really learned to enjoy it, but a lot of people. I mean, that comes up every day. People are like, "How is it fair that somebody lives a limited time?" as a human being and yet their judgment for not believing in Christ is eternal. And again, that's a that's a legitimate question and it's one that I had and one that you have to work through. But prayerfully we will deal with that one next week. Um, oh, where are we in the Sunday school book? At the very end. Yeah, we're getting close to the end of Ephesians. Okay, because I can come Sunday and hopefully from now on. So I was reading, trying to figure out where we were. Yeah, we can figure that out. I think it's the one after walking in love. Okay, that's the one I was reading. Uh, if they're on the same, if you guys are on the same yeah, ones, we are.
Yeah, you just... We always seem to get very sidetracked. Yeah, well, so will you. Yeah, you should sit in ours. We're always... Well, we yeah, we 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 get sidetracked. That's on the issue, but we go shooting this way, and then we go shooting this way, and then he does a pretty good job of bringing us back. He'll say, okay, now, you know... We tend to think, okay, we're talking about somebody else, and then we say, I know, we're back here again. And so, I mean, I've 